Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. Joining us this week from Sweden is Bjorn Isla, who is the co-founder of the Khalifa Isla Institute. He was a founding member of the Extremely Together Project, and he is recently the founder of the European Network of Anti-Fascist Monitoring. Thanks for joining us, Bjorn. Yeah, pleasure. I guess just to begin with, and it's a bit of a hot topic, you've recently launched the European Network of Anti-Fascist Monitoring. Why not just the European Network of Monitoring Fascists? That's a good question. Actually, the name comes out of the funders and my collaborators has at the... Russell Luxemburg Foundation, and, and obviously the project is about uh, monitoring fascists, not anti-fascists, but at the same time empowering anti-fascists. And so we wanted to emphasize the anti-fascist angle in it. We've recently uh, witnessed some uh, debate, discussion, controversy over another institute, the Centre for the Analysis of the Radical Right. And one of the issues that emerged in that context was the uh, willingness of the um, centre to actually describe itself as anti-fascist. The European network is, as the name would imply, attached in some sense to anti-fascism. I was wondering if you could give an opinion about what anti-fascism is, uh, what it means and how it might inform the European network and its monitoring activity. So obviously the, the centre for the analysis of the radical right uh, debacle is kind of unfolding as we speak and so it's it's early to tell where that will be ending up but uh it is my belief that we need to be explicit about the fact that we are anti-fascist when when doing this work that's the objective of both analyzing and, and researching the radical right the far right the fascists whatever label we are applying to them today is to counter them to prevent fascism um, and that is an inherently political objective. And, and in the anti-fascist network, we are trying to some extent to reclaim that label, which has been uh, politically loaded in particular over the last few years, where anti-fascism fascism in itself has been quite often discussed as as bad as fascism uh, in kind of a weird horseshoe theory but yeah we are anti-authoritarian we're anti-fascist um we're building on a long legacy and history of resistance against fascism and authoritarianism in europe and, and elsewhere and it's uh, it's important to honor that and to be explicit about uh, our standpoint uh, and our work 
One of the projects undertaken by the Khalifa Ila Institute is the hate map. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and why it's important to, to track these things in the way that the hate map does? So the hate map in, in many ways is the roots of the anti-fascist monitoring project, right? It started off by us wanting to illustrate the frequency of incidents related to the far right. There's been a large tendency in particular kind of within the state apparatus, within the counter-extremism world, etc., to place a lot of emphasis on the Islamist extremism, which uh, to a large extent also has been fueling uh, Islamophobic narratives, and that's obviously caused a lot of problem uh, problems and, and added fuel to the fire for alternative and far-right to a large extent. And so we wanted to demonstrate uh, kind of the scope of the problem to some extent there. But we also wanted to illustrate that there's not phenomenon that exists within the silos of the nation states. Um, quite often, uh, far-right extremism is described as domestic terrorism, while other forms of extremism and terrorism are described as international. Um, we wanted to demonstrate that the far-right is as, if not more, international in many ways than other terrorist groups and movements. And so that's where some of the work that we put into the anti-fascist monitoring project was heavily focused on those international relations, on demonstrating where there are relationships between individuals, groups, uh, networks, political parties, etc., across national borders. And so part of the goal of this is both to push the discourse further on uh, how we describe both in academic circles, in activist circles, and in journalistic circles, the problem of far-right extremism as um, an international phenomenon, but also to create a tool that is useful for those working within the judiciary and in prosecution of far-right terrorists in particular, where we now can demonstrate that this is, uh, in fact, international terrorism. Beyond, you've also expressed concern about the appearance of hate speech online and the circulation of that sort of discourse on major social media platforms. I'm wondering if you could speak to or about some of the work you've done with the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, which was established by a number of the major companies. And I ask also because uh, you can elaborate on your role in that connection, but certainly uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and so on have experienced a good deal of criticism for their alleged failures in this regard in terms of uh, restricting the distribution of this kind of speech. So I'm wondering if you can talk about your role at the uh, forum and what the challenges are and whether or not you think these kinds of projects are being successful and achieving the goals that they've set themselves. Wow, that's a that's a bundle of questions right there. <laughs> um, I, I think we're, we're kind of tackling... Um all of it piece by piece in many ways, right? Um, sure. First of all, the, the the way in which I view the online online spaces is, is as an extension of kind of meat space, physical reality. The uh, online spheres are, are inherently connected to how our societies are. We've, we've tended to kind of view the two as disconnected in some sort of way, which obviously they aren't. The users online are also people in real life. The people who are uh, behaving in, in threatening and harmful ways online also tends to behave in threatening and harmful ways offline and vice versa. And so that is kind of part of, of um, why I'm engaged in that work in the first place. What the, the social media platforms have been able to do is is obviously amplify the worst in human behavior in many ways. Uh, to some extent, they are also you know, capitalizing and, and, and thriving on that. Um, what we've seen is that uh, 
things that generate outrage um, generate clicks and, and more attention, etc. And, and scandals are, are always uh, plentiful online, quite often rooted in hate speech, rooted in uh, things that would fall well within the narratives of the far right in different ways. And so tackling that, I think, is, is really important in order to, to tackle the overall issue of the far right, right? And so that is kind of largely my motivations for working with the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. In that, I'm, I'm chairing the Independent Advisory Committee. The Independent Advisory Committee provides advice to the operating board and to the executive director of the organization. The organization's operating board uh, has the founding members as representatives there. That is Facebook, that is Twitter, Microsoft, and YouTube. And so those are obviously some of the biggest problems in many ways when it comes to, to a lot of this issue. There's there's a multitude of, of other online platforms as well that are members of the organization right now. And the goal there is to provide tools to tackle these problems. Some of those tools are being used, especially in kind of the immediate reactions to attacks, like um, the attack we saw in, in Christchurch with a live streaming component, where getting that uh, taken down quickly has been kind of a, a key element of, of the work of the organization. Obviously, reactions were not quick enough in uh, 2019 during that attack, but have we've, we can build infrastructure to be able to react more quickly now. There's also the hash sharing consortium through which the various platforms can submit things they see on their platforms that are terroristic propaganda, and, and then other uh, platforms can take action on the basis of kind of automatic flagging of that content. Some of the problems with that has been a lack of good definitions frameworks. Um, like what they've been looking for has largely been based on the UN designation lists of terrorist organizations. Um, as we know, those tend to be heavily biased against Islamist extremism, uh, while completely ignoring issues like far-right extremism and fascist terrorism. And so we've been working as the Independent Advisory Committee to expand that definitional framework and make sure that more uh, content from other forms of extremism are also added to the database so that those issues can also be tackled um, adequately. However, the, the biggest obstacles here is that the companies are still private companies. And they still have the interests of their shareholders primarily at uh, heart and their business models are heavily based on kind of generating attention, uh, collecting people's data, selling ad space, and all of these things that run contrary to a large extent to the objective of creating healthy communities on their platforms. And so it's been to some extent difficult to convince the platforms that uh, implementing policies and um, implementing better sorting algorithms, etc., that don't exploit those base instincts in humanity to run towards uh, the worst possible opinions or perspectives. It's been hard to get them to on board with the idea of, of, of trying to change how they're exploiting that content in order to maintain people's attentions. So there's some back and forth there. At the same time, the platform's takes the issues seriously enough to have set up this organization. And so there's obviously some people within the structure who are willing to work with uh, those of us in, in civil society and around who are concerned about this development as well. You mentioned earlier this tension that exists within the countering violent extremism space, sort of whereby you have these organizations and state institutions that 
throughout the war on terror sort of uh, probably contributed to Islamophobia yep. and now are having to deal with you know, the, the fruits of their labour. What do you think the CVE industry needs to do to uh, redeem itself? Uh, <laughs> another good bundle of questions there, right? Um, I think ultimately problem with uh, the CVE industry as well as with, with much else in this world is a lack of rooting in universal principles. One of the problems that I encountered very early on in my work was that no one's clearly defined violent extremism, right? Um, and so definitions often go by things like designation lists that tend to be kind of just a list of whoever we don't like this week. And so, you know, that's really problematic from a whole range of, of, of perspectives, uh, including the kind of promotion of Islamophobia that we've seen more or less happening by, by sometimes by design, sometimes by accident from, from state actors. From state actors' perspective, we've also seen uh, massive human rights implications where uh, kind of the term terrorist is being used to label uh, legitimate political opposition um, and uh, where we've seen uh, the mass incarceration of people who constitute uh, opposition to, to ruling parties, uh, ruling dictators, etc. That all kind of is being excused within the framework of counterterrorism. And so in order to avoid all of that, I kind of rooted my work in what I'm calling the universal theory of violent extremism, which is that all forms of violent extremism ultimately are rooted in the violent denial of diversity. For a couple of years there, I, I traveled the world and met with former far-right extremists and former Islamists and former extremists of other shades and colors. And so on the basis of, of that work, I concluded that, that what they all had in common was uh, or what what all the extremist movements had in common was this inherent fear of diversity within their communities. Far-right extremists wanted everyone to have the same color of skin or same ethnic heritage of a different sort or, or same to, to some extent also cultural heritage. Islamists wanted everyone to follow one particular, particular interpretation of Islam within their communities. Um, all of these groups are about creating tree violence, homogenous uh, communities. And so my work really became about protecting diversity. And the frameworks we have for doing that are, are reasonably well-developed, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that's why we can have to uphold that and uphold some of these principles as we are um, combating terrorist movements. And in the war on terror, we've seen state actors be more than willing to throw that out the window immediately and uh, to maintain in the protection of safety at the cost of liberty. And so these are kind of things that we've been grappling since the dawn of time, really, as humanity, but we're still dealing with it and we're still seeing the, the fallout of it. Well, in terms of kinds of environments which contribute to the emergence of those that have been problematically termed lone wolf actors, one of the things you've identified at various points is the existence of social bubbles of one kind or another and the absence uh, of a means by which uh, one can encounter the other in, in productive dialogue. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how that manifests in terms of the online environment, but also, I guess, through other avenues and 
you know, what do you think are the, the, the ways and means through which diversity can be protected and fruitful and productive dialogue between different people can take place? Oh, if I had answers to all of that, so, <laughs> we would have solved it all, right? Uh, a few initial thoughts, Bjorn. <laughs> yeah, no, so so um, obviously the issue, issue of filter bubbles. Uh, so I've given TED Talks and whatnot on as well um, is, is a big one. The thing with it is that we tend, again, to think of it as primarily online phenomenon, but uh, reality is that humanity has tended to be selective about who we hang out with since forever. We formed tribes that sat around bonfires and uh, shared stories and um, had very strong stories about us and them who belongs within the group, who does not belong within the group. And, and that tended to be shared, like built on you know, shared interpretations of the world um, back in the Stone Ages, right? And so what the online has been able to do is really uh, just amplify that. And, and uh, I spoke a little bit about this earlier, kind of the amplification of the worst in humanity. And and that is part of it, right? Like we're now able to isolate ourselves to an even greater extent than we've ever been in history. We, we used to have to go down to the shop on the corner and meet the man who worked there who quite often was different from us, but now we can sit in front of our computers and literally have everything delivered to our doorstep without having to even meet the delivery man. And so the isolation from interaction with diversity is really something that we've gotten better and better at through through kind of the evolution of technology and that has led to some real problems in terms of radicalization as well where uh, now we can be so selective about your tribes online that you don't have to interact with anyone who has uh, divergent opinions or ways of viewing the world from you and it's if, if someone annoys you online it's it's a click of a button away to to block them or mute them right um, so it's challenging and troubling that that uh, we don't even have to learn to live with the fact that uh, people are different, have different religious views, have different ways of life, have different experiences and different uh, perspectives to contribute to discourse. And so that's kind of some of the, some of the challenges. The solutions are uh, kind of rooted in, in exposure theory to a large extent and that um, we need to meet diversity we need to meet people with uh, different experiences different opinions different ways of life than us and we need to learn about their humanity to a large extent we're now dehumanizing the other and uh, need to learn to appreciate the humanity in, in uh, all our fellow human beings and so all of this is kind of interconnected but at the end of the day the reality is that it comes down to your ability to sit down and have a cup of tea with someone you disagree with, right? And so that's a learned skill as well. And uh, we need to rig our educational systems or or early age educational systems in particular in order to focus on that. But also we need to take responsibility throughout society to create environments in which it's possible to have healthy discourse that doesn't devolve into... Uh, threats and dehumanization about uh, topics we disagree with. John, you are an extremely together young leader, uh, I was reading before, which I thought was pretty groovy, but uh, what is extremely together? 
Uh, it's a group of people who were convened by uh, Kofi Annan back in 2016. Ten young people from all over the world who are working together um, to counter extremism in, in, in different ways. So that's kind of the gist of it. And how can we be extremely together? By collaborating, by working across uh, national borders, by working across cultures, by seeing that fundamentally when you're working against uh, the far right, against fascism, against authoritarianism, wherever you are in the world or whatever identity or philosophy people are rooting uh, their hatred in, we're largely working uh, towards the same objective of uh, creating healthy, diverse communities. Apart from Extremely Together, you've obviously been involved in a number of different projects over the course of the last 10 years or so. What do you think you've learned uh, through these various engagements and what are the things that have most, I suppose, challenged you or you found the most uh, the most interest? So I've learned a whole bunch of things, right? Uh, it's... Uh, always being engaged in, in all sorts of projects, meeting with uh, people from, from all over the place who have different experiences and different perspectives. There's, there's always always a lot to learn about uh, about the world that we live in, about the ways in which issues are, are tackled in, in different places and in different cultures and uh, so on and so forth. It's, it's uh, been a roller coaster. The most challenging is is always when when people disappoint you, when conflicts uh, get out of hand and, and people you thought were on the same page um, are appear to not be. And in those moments, it's kind of important to also remember that um, we live in a challenging world, that uh, there is real difficulty with kind of standing up against uh, fascism, standing up against uh, authoritarianism, that there's... People are putting themselves at risk and being exposed to some of the most horrific things in this world. And at the end of the day, uh, kind of maintaining the faith in the best in humanity and understanding that at times we misstep on the basis of trauma, on the basis of being in a defensive position a lot of the time um, is, is kind of the, the hardest part. Um, and the most painful part at, at times. Just finally, Bjorn, uh, obviously, as you just mentioned, there, there is a lot of traumatic material that people will encounter when they're working in this space, and it can be quite difficult. I was wondering what you could share for people working in this space. How, how can they renew themselves and stay sane, and how can people work with longevity in mind? Working with longevity in mind has been the issue that I've been trying to resolve since uh, having kind of really severe burnouts uh, very early in my work. I've been talking about kind of the, the idea of sustainable activism. Obviously, there's there's different components to that. One of them is, is uh, financial sustainability. We see a lot of really good work being done right now by anti-fascists and researchers who are dedicating literally all their spare time to um, to the struggle against fascism, and uh, who are not being compensated for that work, even when that work is being used in kind of the highest levels of government and so forth. And that's really problematic and troubling in terms of just the sustainability of, of those individuals. And, and so and my heart goes out to, to them a lot. And um, then there is the mental health aspect of it, uh, making sure that uh, you sustain yourself in, in, in some sort of healthy way. And uh, for me, uh, 
that has largely been about finding really good people uh, to work with, finding and establishing spaces for airing grievances and frustrations with trusted circles, with with close friends who know the struggle, who are in the struggle, um, who are dealing with the same kind of materials as I'm dealing with, etc. And so finding finding groups um, and working together and knowing that you're not alone um, is really, really key. Uh, finding good mentors, people to seek advice from. And there are troubles is also another one. And one thing we're working on and establishing right now is, is better infrastructure for not just the kind of academic and journalistic research side of things, but uh, for the celebration side of things. We aren't good enough at celebrating within the fascist world. and We do have victories every now and then, and that's worth celebrating, but it's also worth um, celebrating life itself. And so creating healthy spaces for uh, anti-fascist activists to come together and to celebrate life together, I think, is, is uh, kind of a, a big next step for for uh, my work in this. And, and I hope we're kind of building towards that. And uh, through things like um, anti-fascist Europe, we've really kind of laid some of the groundwork for uh, both the research and, and journalism for the sustainability of it and for convening across or kind of conventional groups and, and uh, national borders uh, in really good ways to both advance the work and to advance the people who are committed to the work. Well, Bjorn, we'll leave it there on, I have to say, a significantly more positive note than these shows usually end. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter, you are at Bjorn IH. People can also find the Khalifa Isla Institute at KhalifaIsla.org, as well as the Anti-Fascist Europe Project at AntiFascist-Europe.org. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, folks, that's all we've got time for. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. To life, to life, l'chaim. L'chaim, l'chaim, to life. Here's to the father I tried to be. Here's to my boy to be. Drink l'chaim, to life, to life, l'chaim. L'chaim, l'chaim, to life. Life has a way of confusing us, letting and bruising us. Drink l'chaim, to life. Gobbled like a stupid joyful, even when our hearts fight
COVID has shown anything, no government in Australia has had a planned approach to safety in terms of workers under COVID. Everything's been done knee-jerk. So whilst you've got market capitalism operating from a market perspective, we're only ever going to get knee-jerk things which involve huge exploitation, inequity and racism. None of these things are being planned or addressed in any long-term way. It's all stopgap and knee-jerk, and it is because of the role of the market. Subscribe to 3CR, workers' rights and union struggles. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Live at the Bowl is back. The Open Air Series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentremelbourne.com.au A 3CR supporter. 